never fails. You will always find a way, even when it costs you everything. You gave us your son. Your love never fails. As we continue in Psalm 77 tonight, Father, I pray that burning coals would touch my lips, that you would have your burning coals from your throne touch our ears. I am a woman of unclean lips. I mess it up. And we have unclean ears, hearing only what we want to hear, and sometimes not wanting to hear what we know we need to hear. And so I pray for your grace and your mercy and the power of your spirit to be our leader, our teacher, our guide as we continue in this powerful psalm that tells us your love never fails. And whether we know it or not, we need to be reminded of this. So I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, the meditations of all of our hearts, as we listen to your word, will be pleasing to you. And that we will leave this place ready to do exactly as you ask. That we might experience more fully that your love never fails. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to get to be with all of you sisters tonight. I can't think of any other place I'd rather be, quite honestly. Um, And since we're all sisters, I'm wondering if you would all be willing to admit with me, if this is you, maybe it wasn't some of you, but how many of you were willing to admit that when you were a young schoolgirl, you know what you did with these? You went out to the field, you found the weedy little daisies, and you went, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me. Okay, who did that? Oh, good, I'm not alone. Is there actually more at night than in the morning? Go figure that out. Even if we haven't literally plucked petals as silly schoolgirls, I bet we've all had times in our life when we were not sure if our love for someone was mutual. There were times when the object of our love, he would say something, do something that would excite our hearts, and ecstatic we would think, ah, he loves me. Then, (laughs) there were times he said, did or didn't do, the phone didn't ring, something that disappointed us, and we miserably decided, he loves me not. None of us would argue that to love someone and to have that love returned is quite wonderful, even when you're only 7 or 8 or 12. And I bet none of us would argue that to love and to have our love unreturned is devastating, no matter your age. And if this is true for human love, how much more true might this be for divine love? To truly love God, to really see who he is, and to know that he loves you back is a wonderful that is unexplainable. There's comfort and there's joy beyond anything you can ever receive humanly. But to love God, to truly love him and to get who he is and to fall in love with God and to think he doesn't love you back is not only devastating, it's actually terrifying. Because you know, because you've fallen in love with him, that he is the ruler of the universe. He's the almighty God. And to think that he does not love you, it is a terrifying thought. It's troubling. And it's an emotion that I would think, and I have experienced, is pretty impossible to surf on your own. It's overwhelming. 
And this is where we find our psalmist in Psalm 77, good old Asaph. Something has happened in his life that has convinced him he is unloved by God. It could be his circumstances. It could be that he's suffering some sort of trial. It could be loneliness. It could be disease. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be financial loss. It could be mistreatment that is undeserved, betrayal. He could be wrongly accused. He could be taken captive. It could be an exile psalm when God's people were taken into captivity because of their sin. It could also be that his own sin has convinced him. For some of us, our circumstances right now are cause us to go, does he love me? For others of us, it's not our circumstances. We actually look at trials and we go, yeah, I deserve it. It's our sin that has convinced us we are unlovable. Maybe it's our repeated failures, anger, envy, lust, drunkenness, idolatry for this psalmist. Something possibly has convinced him he loves me not. So we don't know if it's circumstances and trials and suffering, and we don't know if it's sin, but we know that something has convinced him he loves me not. And I think we're not given the cause intentionally because I think God, by his sovereign hand, knows if he gives us a cause, then we'll kind of opt out. But if there's no cause, can we not all relate at some level? Many of us have suffered in ways, some of us in a variety of ways. It's amazing to me how some people experience so much more suffering than others. But some of us have experienced suffering in such a way and in a variety of ways that we have been tempted to believe, how could God possibly love me? He loves me not. You just look at the dark days of trouble. There's been the death of someone we love. There's been diseases. There's been divorce. There's been disability. There's been financial devastation. And for some of us, there's been multiple things. For others of us, there's the struggle to believe he loves me because of our sin. This is where I struggle most. I see so clearly my own gossip and my greed and my envy, and maybe you do too. Lust, idolatry, my inability to get it right as fast as I want to get it right. And I can sometimes feel like I'm on my last pedal, and the last pedal is he loves me not. If we're honest, most of us at one time or another have been tempted to believe he loves me not. If you have never been tempted to believe this, you are blessed. As I said this morning, you have lived a charmed life. (laughs) And you've been given this gift of Psalm 77 to prepare you for when it does happen. Because it may. If you are one who has always been certain of God's love for you, or if at least you are not in a season of doubting, you are in a season of knowing that he loves you, um, I'd like to ask a favor of you tonight for the next 30 minutes. Pray. Pray for your sisters in this room who do feel this way. There are women in this room right now because of their circumstances or because of their sin right now are on their last pedal. And they're struggling. So if you are enjoying a season of knowing God loves you, you're not plucking petals, will you pray while we look at Psalm 77 with me? Pray that God's word will speak to each of our hearts as we see how the psalmist moves from he loves me not to he loves me. But before we get to move, we have to stay with he loves me not just so we can see what helped him stop plucking petals. Let's look at his blunt honesty It's just amazing sometimes, isn't it, what God puts in his word? Just the blunt honesty 
of the psalmist, when his troubles convince him, when his dark day of trouble convince him, he loves me not. He begins with, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. The psalmist is in clear distress. He's in a day, a season of trouble. And this word trouble means adversity, affliction. And this word cry means shrieking. He is shrieking. He's holding nothing back. He is screaming out loud. He's honest and he's raw and he's real. And some of us look at that and go, well, gosh, do we really need to do that when God already knows everything and he can read the heart? Some of us are so stoic, right? And we just can't ever get like that. But you know what? There is some good things about talking out loud, as we talked about a few weeks ago. We have Jesus as our example. Hebrews 5, 7 says, in the days of flesh, Jesus, fully God and fully man. In the days of flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So I think we can look at the psalmist and we can look at our own Savior and say, there is a time and a place to cry out loud and to hold nothing back. The psalmist is determined to cry out until God hears him. That's why he repeats it. I'm going to keep crying out until you hear me, God. And by hearing him, by looking at the rest of the psalm, we know what he means is, I'll know you heard me when you do something, God. I want an act that proves you love me. Have you been there? Ask for the neon sign? Lord, please, just light it up in my bedroom or maybe a billboard and then confirm it with a bumper sticker and then have a friend text it to me, the same verse, all three times, and then I'll know you love me. I want a miracle. Can I just have a miracle? You do miracles. Can I have one, please? Then I know you'll love me. And maybe it's because he's even done miracles in our lives in the past. I see this so much with the, the Church of Central Asia. It's a new church just, just birthing and, and getting to know our suffering sisters there. Many have come to faith through miraculous works of God, healings that are unexplainable, visions and wonders, like the psalmist is talking about. And now as the church is beginning to mature, they're not seeing as many miracles. And they say to us, does God still love us? And they're wrestling, and we are wrestling. And I don't know about you, but I struggle a little bit because the psalmist seems a bit demanding. But I think God wants me to see it because he wants me to see that he's praying his heart out. Rather than medicating and denying how he really feels. Matthew Henry says, In the days of trouble must be days of prayer. Those that are under a trouble of mind must not drink it away or laugh it away, but pray it away. And as one of our morning leaders said, and not five Oreo cookie it away. Do you do that? Chocolate surely will be the best. Rather than shrieking, I'm going to eat chocolate. Or sleep. Or run to other people. Or there's so many things we do to drink it away or laugh it away. The psalmist knows he cries out with everything that is in him. When he talks about my soul, remember when we first talked about the psalms, the word soul means my whole being. It's not just your heart or your spirit. It's everything in you. And you see this with him. His arms won't even get tired. I mean, mine are tired if I have to stretch out and pray for someone for more than 30 seconds. This guy won't even, can't even put his arms down. Why? Because he cannot convince himself that God loves him. 
and he can't believe any other person telling him God loves him, the gap's too big. The feeling of being unloved is too big. He can't talk himself out of it, and he can't believe anybody else's words. Have you ever been there that no matter how many times someone tells you, no matter how many times you chant it to yourself, you just can't seem to believe it? The gap is too big. The only way I will be comforted, Lord, that breathe a sigh of relief is what he's saying, is if you do something to prove your love. He calls him God, which is Adonai, master of the universe. And what he's saying is, I know you do miracles. Why don't you do one for me? You are the God of miracles, and you're not doing one, and now I'm so disappointed. Psalm 77, 3 through 6, you hear his disappointment. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. We talked about this at the beginning of our Psalms, how much remembering is crucial to the Israelites in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And it wasn't just important to them. It was important to them because it was important to God. God said continually, you saw that in your study, remember, 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 remember. But for this psalmist, remembering is making it worse. Have you ever been there? That remembering actually makes it worse? On a human level, this happens all the time. We remember the days when somebody was kind to us, and it makes the fact that they've rejected us worse. And this is where the psalmist is. He feels worse as he remembers better days. God, you did love me. I'm remembering. But now you don't. And sometimes we don't even do this to ourselves. The church will do it for us. There was a season in our life where we had two accidents in six months, totaled two cars, and I was pregnant with Olivia, found out I had gestational diabetes, had a broken leg, I was on crutches, and a very sweet friend said to me, well, gee, what have you done wrong that God's mad at you? Sometimes we don't even do it to ourselves. We just let the church do it to us. And I remember in that moment thinking, yeah, there have been better days. You must have loved me better then, and you don't love me now. There are times in our life when remembering God produces groaning. It produces spiritual exhaustion. Because we go immediately to, he's judging me. It's wrath. He's angry with me. And we can become so afraid that, like the psalmist, we can't sleep. Our mind is confused. We start forgetting what we know to be true. We have disordered thoughts and an overwhelmed spirit. And really, the bottom line to our sleeplessness is we have a lot of doubt. Have you had doubts? If you've been there, you know that this is worse than never having God love you. For me, I grew up in a non-believing home. And when I came to faith, finding the love of God was massive to me. And then thinking I lost it was almost like I wish I would have never found it. I was better off, you know? It's fearful. It's scary. C.S. Lewis, in A Grief Observed, written after his wife died, says, No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. That's on a human level what it's like to truly grieve. And yet, when it's God that you think doesn't love you, it is fear. You know he's the master of the universe and he doesn't love you? That is scary and fearful. And in clear distress and deeply disappointed with God, the psalmist situation causes deep desperation, understandably. In his day of trouble, whether it's suffering that's causing this trouble or whether it's his sinfulness, 
He has come to a dark conclusion about God. He loves me not. You can see him plucking out the last petal in desperation as he cries out these questions. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? I don't know about you guys, but my mom always told me, never say never or always, right? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? The psalmist is tempted to believe that God has pushed aside his love, not temporarily, but forever, eternally. God is not and will never again have favor over me. And favor in, in, this, in this passage means a willingness to forgive and bestow blessings. The psalmist is clear in his mind that God can't forgive me and he will never give me his blessings again. Is your steadfast love gone? I don't feel loved. I don't feel forgiven. And the conclusion is, we see it twice, spurn, spurn, spurn. You're angry with me. That's the conclusion. I had a young woman this morning say to me, I never have thought of myself as, not, as God not loving me, but I have thought of him as being angry with me. And that's really the same thing, is it not? So maybe you started off tonight thinking, no, I've never felt like God didn't love me, but I sure think he's angry with me. It's really very similar, is it not? This word anger, this spurn, is a face rapidly breathing in your face. That's how he feels. Your mercy has disappeared. Your promises are over because your anger has swallowed up any bit of compassion you have in you, God. And yet, strangely, his questions have this therapeutic effect. And I think there's something in here for us. Doubts and questions, if addressed to God, are a pathway to hope. We have psalms that are called murmuring psalms. These are psalms where people are railing about God, and God warns them. Not a good idea. And then we have lamenting psalms, which is what this is, where they cry out to God. And when we take our doubts and our questions to the living God, they become a pathway to hope. They become a pathway to deepening our faith. We shouldn't be afraid of doubts. We shouldn't be afraid of questions. We should take them to God. Tim Keller says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. Is that not true? Questions, if addressed to God, will deepen our faith. I remember being, as a young believer, visiting extended family, and I had a lot of persecution in my immediate family and extended family, and I had this uncle that I really loved and respected, and he was a, he was a theology major, but not a believer. And he took me on and took me on and took me on in my young faith, and I was so confused, and I was, had so many questions, and I got on that airplane home, and I just cried out to God and opened up my Bible to... The wisdom of God is foolishness to man. It was exactly what he was saying to me. This is foolish what you're believing. And God met me right in that moment. When we address them to him, he will find a way to meet us. But when we complain about him to others, that is a pathway to despair. 
Questionings to God is a pathway to hope. Jesus himself asked such questions on that cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He modeled for us that it's not the strength of our faith, Tim Keller says, but the object of our faith that saves us. I've had so many people tell me, if you just had more faith, if you just had more faith, if you just had more faith, it's like, wait a minute, there's something wrong there. It's not the amount of faith I can stir up. It's who I have faith in. My faith can be the size of a mustard seed when my God is greater than the universe. So we don't need to stir up more faith. We need to fall in love more and find out more who God is. Amen? And the object of the psalmist's faith and why he's able to find a pathway to hope is a God of steadfast love. And steadfast love also means covenant love, unfailing love. By definition, steadfast love is eternal, it's binding, it's based on sacrificial love. God is love. And this compels God to do whatever it takes to never be cut off from his people. To keep on loving his own, to ensure that his promises never fail no matter what it costs him. Numbers 23:19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? No, he is steadfast. His, by definition, his promises can't fail. His name depends on it. And his name, what, endures forever. So when we are faithless, guess what? He is faithful. Why? Because his name depends upon it. And he won't deny himself. God will not cut himself off from his people. The psalmist is remembering this. He's remembering that God always finds a way to have compassion swallow up anger. Not anger, swallow up compassion. And so now the psalmist is ready to look back on how God's compassion has swallowed up his anger throughout his history with his people. And this is so what we need to know and remember to get to he loves me. 10 through 14, then, he, then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. The psalmist, remembering that first brought exhaustion and spiritual depression, is now bringing revival to his heart. As he begins with, I appeal. What this means, we think, the Hebrews really, um, there's very little there, so we have to kind of guess by looking at all the other verses. But what most believe is that he is saying, I have said to my distress, I've said to my trouble, I've said to my affliction, this is my lot. It's almost like he's waving a white, white flag. To change it is God's. This is my lot, and to change it is God's. And so he's able to stop looking at his circumstances or his sin, whatever is causing his trouble, and instead look to the right hand of God. He goes from I to you, and it makes all the difference in the world. He does what C.S. Lewis once did. C.S. Lewis says, feelings and feelings and feelings. Let me try thinking instead. Amen? That's how we surf the feelings, is we start thinking. It doesn't mean we deny the feelings, it means we have truth in which to ride it. 
clear deeds of God. The psalmist goes back to the beginning of the Most High's right hand. The, the, when he says Most High, we believe it means he's going back to Abraham. Abraham was the father of God's people. Abraham was an idolater who knew nothing about God. God revealed himself to Abraham, pulled him out of the land of Ur, and created a people for himself through this one man that he revealed himself to. God's right hand led Abraham, an idolater, out of idolatry and into a love relationship. Not because Abraham was so wonderful, but because God's love is steadfast. And though Abraham suffered greatly, and though Abraham sinned greatly, God's steadfast love kept surrounding him, kept giving him grace, giving him mercy. Oh, we need to see the steadfast love of God. So far from failing, if we look at the scriptures, we will see God's right hand links the past, the beginning of God's people, to the present and then to the future. And we need to meditate on it. I was driving around the other morning and I heard an ad for a church, I think it was in Modesto, that was going to do a marathon Bible reading. I think they were going to begin on Good Friday and just keep reading until Easter. Maybe it was Thursday they were going to start. Ninety hours and you can read the whole Bible. If you do 24 hours, 15 minute increments, they were looking for volunteers. I thought, oh, how cool would it be to sit there? I know we'd be tired for 90 hours and hear the word of God read to us. Do you know how much of his right hand you would hear through the generations from Genesis to Revelation? And then when I was Googling it, I found that the Texas A&M does this. Their kids do this. They do it in the quad. Is that the coolest And this started on our nation's capital. They read the Bible for 90 hours leading up to the National Day of Prayer. How cool is that? I don't know about you, but I need to sit through that over and over and over and over again. I need more than 90 hours. And then I think, golly, Lord, I don't even give you the minutes. No wonder I'm stuck in I and not moving to you. A.W. Tozer says, may not the inadequacy of much of our spiritual experience be traced back to our habit of skipping through the corridors of the kingdom like children in the marketplace, chattering about everything but pausing to learn the true value of nothing? Do we not do this? We grab little pieces of Christianity and we think that will set us for the next couple weeks? And our, 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 our Christianity is so surface that trials or sin come and we do not know what to do. We're on our last pedal. He loves me not. I need 90 hours. Over and over and over again to see that the deeds of God's right hand in their variety and in their number reveal his steadfast love. God's miracles are just so so amazing and so diverse throughout God's word. No one is like him, the psalmist gets to, and that's what we get to when we hear those 90 hours. His ways are unlike any other God. Any other thing I've been running to in my dark circumstances, all the things I've been running to when I feel this weight of sin, blaming and denial and And the drinking and the laughing or whatever we try to do to escape, those little gods are not working. Nothing is like you, God. You are the God who is holy. You are the one who will take me through my circumstances, take me through my sin to a holy end. The psalmist experiences revival because he's remembering that all God does, all God allows, has a holy end. No matter how painful it may be, it will be good Some of us know this, but if we're honest, we just don't really like it because we wonder how painful good is going to be. Amen? C.S. Lewis, I love this. We are not necessarily doubting God's will to do the best for us. We are just wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. 
And as I shared with the morning, I remember being pregnant with our sweet Olivia here, our third child, and we were told, you're going to have a high risk of having another child with special needs. So we were wanting to adopt and not have any more children biologically. And this wonderful, beautiful gift God gave us in Olivia. But as I was pregnant with her, I kept thinking, I know your will is good. I know your will is best. But what if it's two children with special needs? Trying to grasp that as much as I love my Aubrey. Trying to be able to hang on to that and say that would be okay because I know it's a holy end. And so I can totally relate to C.S. Lewis. God's ways are not understandable. He has the authority to do anything he would like in our life. But even though it's not understandable, we know it has a holy end. In time, and it may not be till eternity, he proves, I love you. C.S. Lewis, again, one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes, he says that when we get to heaven, the first words out of our mouth will be, of course. (laughs) There are things that we won't get here. We won't see the sanctifying work of some of the circumstances we've been through until we get to heaven. But there will be a day when we will see clearly what we only now see dimly. Although God's ways are not seeable, they are unseen, they are mysterious, they are unfathomable, Yet, unmistakably, in time, they will reveal a righteous right hand that delivers. Can I hear an amen? The truth remembered causes the psalmist's own deliverance, his own spiritual deliverance from doubt and from questions. As he looks back to God's incredible redemptive work, the most incredible redemptive work in all of the Old Testament, the Exodus, and with your arm redeemed your people... The children of Jacob and Joseph, you with your arm redeemed them. Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. He's remembering the Exodus. He's remembering God taking his people out of slavery and into a promised land. And he's remembering that God's arm is always set on deliverance. His arm is set to redeem. And this word redeem means kinsmen. He delivers us to enter into a relationship with us. That's why he takes the time, the effort, uses his miraculous powers to deliver us. So he can enter into a deeper relationship with us. We are the objects of the deepest possible love, even when there's sin. I think it's so significant. Maybe I'm reading too much into it that he talks about the children of Jacob and Joseph. Jacob was a a stinker, and that's a nice word for Jacob. If you don't know Jacob, read about him. Put down any other thing you're reading. Don't surf Facebook. You will be entertained beyond belief. Genesis 25 to 30. He's a deceiver, a manipulator. He's... Oh my goodness, he is just an absolute stinker. And he had to wrestle because God wanted to still use him. God wanted to still bless him in the midst of all of his sin. He deceived his brother. His brother's out for his life. He's, oh my goodness, he gets tricked into marrying. Oh, it, it's, you just have to read it. I, I don't even have time to go into it. But there's this one incredible scene in Jacob's life where Jacob is told by God, go back home. And he doesn't want to go home because he's got a brother out to kill him because he deceived him and he tricked him and he stole from him. And he wrestles in this garden to obey God and to believe God has good for him. And I have to wonder, how much did he wrestle because of his own sin? How how would you use me? Why would you use me, God? And in this passage, Jacob wrestles with God with an angel all night. He finds out to be God. And he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He hangs in there through his sin, trusting that God 
can find a way. We need to hear that tonight. And God, he, and then the psalmist brings up Joseph. I think he's one of the only people in Scripture that there's nothing bad about. And yet everything bad possible happened to him. He's sold out by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. He, he does well and he honors God. And so he gets into this high position of authority. And he's wrongly accused by some crazy sensual woman who lies about him. He's thrown into jail. He does well in jail. He gets favor there because he honors God. He does favors for people who completely forget about him. He's betrayed. He's left in prison in the prime of his life. And he finally, by God's grace and God's timing, comes into a place of prominent power and his brothers are back and he has every resource to wreak revenge that they deserve. But he gives them grace and he says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so I think Asaph, the psalmist, is reminding us, whether it's sin or whether it's your circumstances, God's steadfast love will find a way. He's at work. He's remembering the parting of the Red Sea where both the sinful and the suffering were delivered from bondage from Egypt and led into a relationship. The waters were afraid of God. The mysterious forces of the deep sea twisted in his presence. It's so cool, the picture here, to part open for his people. The waters were believed to be where evil dwelt by the Israelites. They believed that in the depths of the sea, that's where evil dwelt. And so the psalmist is saying, you made a way right through evil. Evil obeys you. As Martin Luther said, Satan is God's devil. He's on a leash, the length of which God controls. God is in control. The waters where evil dwelt quivered. God's way was through the sea to deliverance, and then he used the sea to destroy the enemies. And then he used the path to take them to into a deeper relationship with him. And so when he talks about the lightning and the thunder, he's talking about the giving of the Ten Commandments. God, again, delivered them to enter into a relationship with him. God entered and gave them the Ten Commandments. Why? Because he wanted a covenant-binding, steadfast, loving relationship with them that would never end. And you know what he did? There were two copies. Some people think the two tablets mean there is, here's one through five and here's seven, you know, six through ten. No, it was two copies. Why? Typically, there's one copy, and if I break it, I'm dead, and if you break it, you're dead. God made two copies. Why? Because he knew we would break it, and he would have a copy that remains because he would remain faithful, and he would find a way to stay in steadfast love with us. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. The psalmist is getting this truth from Isaiah. The psalmist's trouble is not forgotten, ladies. Don't miss it. Everything isn't tied up in a neat package with a bow on it. It's not solved. He's not been rescued. But his idea, he loves me not, is confronted with God's power that is always at work, proving his steadfast love. Through remembering the Old Testament's greatest scene of redemption, the Exodus, the psalmist comes to a new dependence on God, a certainty He loves me. He doesn't have to prove it. He already has. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The God who shepherded his people through the Red Sea, the psalmist knows, is going to shepherd me. I may not see how, but he will. 
shepherd me through this dark trouble, whether it's my whether it was sin or suffering. And he specifically gives us Moses and Aaron, which is huge because Moses is the ruler, the governor of God's people, and Aaron was the priest. Moses led. Aaron interceded for their sin. Moses led. So when we're in dark circumstances, God leads us. And when we sin, Jesus intercedes for us. God will lead him through his circumstances and God will minister to him when he sins in those circumstances. How much more we who look back to a greater exodus, something more powerful, more miraculous than a parting of a Red Sea, and that is the cross. Dr. Legan Duncan says the believer runs to the cross and we find there an even deeper comfort because we find when we look to the cross that the antidote to our sin and to our grief was in what the Lord Jesus absorbed. At the cross, God's anger did swallow up his compassion when all our sin was placed on his son. God's anger swallowed up his compassion to his only beloved son because he became our sin for us. Why? So that his compassion could swallow up his anger towards those of us who trust in him. God found a way for us to not be cut off. A permanent way for us to never be cut off from his steadfast love. And it is the good shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I love this picture my mom-in-law gives. One hand, here's your right hand. God the father. Left hand, God the son. You're in there. And if you are in Christ, nothing can snatch you. Not your sin and not your circumstances. The cross is enough. It is finished. He is risen. That means debt paid in full. And God said yes. And if you are in Christ, it doesn't matter what you've done. You cannot be snatched. God's steadfast love found a way to keep us eternally. He sent his son to live the life we couldn't live and die the death that we should have died. And though God's footprints were not seen, we couldn't see all that happened. He took Jesus through the great waters of death and he raised him from the dead and he defeated all evil, not just the parting the sea. He parted all evil. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He made a way to disarm all evil. Jesus rose again to lead God's flock by the hand. He's still the good shepherd. Looking up at the cross, ladies, we can know that no matter how dark Our circumstances, no matter how dark your circumstances are tonight, it is not because God is angry with you. Jesus absorbed all that. Although we cannot see God's footprints, Jesus knows exactly how we feel. He's been tempted and tried in every way, yet sinless. He knows exactly how we feel, and he is interceding for us, praying for us, holding us by the hand, taking us to the Father's holy will. Our trouble will have a holy end. It will sanctify us. It will change us in ways that will bless others and bless ourselves. It will prove to be an important part of our faith journey to He loves me. And for the rest of us who struggle with our sin, looking up to the cross, we can know that although we may yet still sin, I shouldn't say although, although we still sin, yes, if we are in Christ, God is not angry with you. Don't miss if you're in Christ. We will still sin, but if we are in Christ, God is not 
angry with you. All the more reason to be in Christ, because apart from Christ, yes. Jesus absorbed our wrath. He absorbed the wrath of God for those who trust in him. Jesus let go of God's hand to place our hand into God's hand. Tim Keller says, the gospel is this. We are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. At the same time, this creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. That's why it's so important we get the gospel. It means that the more you see your own flaws and sins, Keller writes, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more you are able to drop your denials of self-defenses and admit the true character of your sin. Ladies, for years I have been in a bondage. I've been in an Egypt of when I see my sin feeling so defeated and angry with myself, I can't forgive myself. Have you been there? I, I get that God can forgive me maybe, but I can't forgive myself. Guess what that means? I have an idol. My opinion of myself matters more than God's opinion. If Jesus says it's enough, if he says it is finished, it is finished. And when I don't accept the forgiveness of God, I have an idol. It may be your acceptance. It may be what my parents want of me. It may be what I expect of myself. But it is self-righteousness. It's being surprised I'm a sinner. That is freeing. To figure out that my own thinking I can't forgive myself is idolatry. It's self-righteousness. But when we get that it's enough, when we get that his matter, his opinion is the only one that matters, then repentance is sweet. Then we want to run to the cross. See, when we're mad at ourselves, we don't even want to run to the cross. We want to just soak in it and stew in it till we all get all pruney. But when we recognize that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. Repentance is sweet because it takes us to He loves me. The great shepherd is alive. He's holding our hand, making repentance sweet until He takes us home. So the wrap-up of Psalm 77, ladies, is until Jesus returns for us, there are going to be dark days of trouble. If you're not in one now, you're headed into one. I'm sorry to tell you that. It's true. It's life. It's the human condition, and it's sanct- God uses it to sanctify us. There will be dark circumstances in each of our lives that will tempt us to believe, He loves me not. And we will want to cry out to God until He performs an act, until He gives us a neon sign to prove He loves us. We can drop our flowers. We can quit plucking petals if we just look at the cross. We can say with certainty, He loves me at that empty tomb. Until Jesus returns for us, there are going to be days of trouble when the darkness of our sin tempts us. We do something we think we would never do, which is another form of self-righteousness. When the darkness of our own sin tempts us to believe he loves me not and we want to cry out to God for a new crucifixion. We want Jesus to die all over again to prove it. No, we go back to the cross and we drop our petals and we say he loves me. It was enough. And the repentance is sweet and the change comes. As we realize Jesus ministers to us in our suffering and our sin. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Oh, what love the Father has for us. Concluding, I want to read the words of Lincoln Duncan again. The God of the Red Sea, the God of the Pillar Cloud, the God of Sinai, the God of the Wilderness, the God of the Jordan, the God too we may out of Calvary, the cross, and the God of Bethany, 
who shall lead us even as he led Israel, even when the earth shakes again, when he returns, until that day when he comes to cast some light on his way that was in the sea and his paths that were in the great waters and his footsteps that were a mystery. He's coming back. And all that is mysterious will be unveiled. Until then, we have that massive act of redemption, the cross, to help us stop plucking petals and know he loves me. Oh, Father, if we are in Christ, your compassion has swallowed up all your anger. Oh, what love the Father has that we can become children of God. Not just children, but heirs with Jesus Christ. To him be all the glory. Amen. Let's finish with this last chord.